How do you grow like a VC-backed company without taking on investors? Do you want to create a lifestyle business, a performance business, or an empire? How do you scale to an exit without losing your freedom? Those are the questions, and this show is the answer. Welcome, everybody, to the Scale Up Show. This is your host, Ryan Staley, and I have a very special guest with me today. I have Daniel Graf Radford, who is the CEO of Allbound, which is the world's best partner relationship management platform headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia. Prior to that, Daniel led the company in product and strategy for OnSolve, where he helped take it from zero to 110 million. Uh, Awesome to have you on, Daniel. Welcome, man. Thank you so much. Excited to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited. I mean, based on what we talked about in the uh, the prep session about, you know, just kind of your solution and what you're doing, because I haven't really heard of anything else like it in the marketplace. And so I love to bring that to my audience and to you, the listeners, so that you could get exposure to these things. So before we get too deep into that, though, let's do a really quick revenue rundown. So everybody has some context in terms of where you're at in terms of your journey. So in terms of that, what's your revenue range for your ARR? Yeah, so we're about a $10 million run rate company today. Okay, perfect. Uh, what's the size of your team? We are over 60 employees. Okay, awesome. And then what's your primary go-to-market strategy for revenue, let's say? Yeah, so we have a pretty even split of both inbound and outbound revenue activities. And we have a pretty, pretty good referral program as well. Ooh, love to dig into that. I'm really big on referrals, so uh, would love to dig into that a little bit later. And then let's talk about your solution. What exactly does your solution do and who does it serve? Yeah. So not everyone's heard of partner relationship management or channel technology, but what's really interesting is that 75% of the world's goods and services, according to the World Trade Organization, happens through partnerships. And, you know, for the last 22 years that I've worked in B2B technology companies, a lot of my success happened in partnerships and some of my hard lessons as well. And so when I saw this product, uh, when I was brought in by the VCs, I fell in love with it. It's just a great product. So what it does is it helps companies that have a channel program to onboard their channel partners, get them trained and handle deal management and co-marketing. So think about it as like a deal desk for all of your channel partners, uh, the way that you'd want to have for direct reps as well. That's awesome. That's I mean, I'm one of those people. I'm raising my hand over here. I didn't, I didn't hear about the uh, the solution before I started talking. So, uh, and then, are you bootstrapped or are you backed? Yeah, so we're backed by some fantastic venture capitalists, and um, they have started putting money into this company in 2015, and I joined in 2018. We were just over a million dollars, uh, not quite two million dollars back then, and so it's been quite a run, good ride so far. Yeah, I'd say so. It looks like you're doing a really good job of uh, blowing things up pretty quick. So so let's get into a little bit more about you and your journey here. You know, obviously, you have the product and the strategy background. You mentioned sales as well. So I think that's an awesome, I mean, a very unique com- combination to have all three. So can you just give us your, your story and kind of how you got to this point before you, know, you became the CEO, and then we'll kind of take it from there. The uh, first venture capital-backed company that I worked at was called OmniLink Systems, and I started in sales. And you know, when you start really early, you know, you help co-author the business plan and so forth. You get to try different different things. And 
Um, so I led a lot of the sales that accounted for about 90% of the revenues. And then once we brought in some serious money, I got moved into the VP of sales role and then also managed all of our back then it was called account management. Now it's customer success. And, um, as well. And we sold the company to a public company. But during the time that I was there, I led our partner program that it helped us come up with some new products and that we, we developed with Verizon and with Sprint and, and also with AT&T. And so I learned, uh, you know, the product development side of things through those projects and uh, was hired on by a public company here in Atlanta called PGI to run their innovation lab and come up with new products. And that was a lot of fun. It went really well. And I met uh, Kaushal Panjwani through that, who is our uh, head of engineering here at Allbound, and Tori Barlow, who's our head of marketing. And so our success at building and launching products through partnerships there uh, definitely translated later. But uh, the company was taken private. Um, and um, that was a wonderful experience to participate in. And I was recruited away through Veritas, the private equity firm in New York, who wanted to do a roll up of mass notification systems. So think about when your phone buzzes at you about an Amber Alert. Uh, 25% of that anger you feel at your phone, you could direct at me. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so we, we grew that to zero to 110 million, mostly through MA and also. Um, you know, growing the product set as well. And that was a wonderful experience. And, and while I was there, my CEO quit and Veritas uh, informed me that uh, they would give me a promotion, but not to run the company. And I was having a lot of fun. It was great. And um, then uh, Jim Armstrong, who founded JDA Software and had backed me at OmniLink, said that he had this really cool product and needs a CEO when I take a look at it. And after getting off a phone call and looking at the product and getting out to Arizona, uh, where the people were, there were 12 people in the room. I came back to tell my wife I was taking a 50% pay cut and I was going to start commuting to the desert. She was (laughs) very confused about that conversation. Um, but it's been the best decision I ever made. And, um, this is the most fun I've ever had at any company. Wow. That's awesome, man. That's a great story. So you're, you're commuting, you said to the desert, you go to, you're talking Arizona, right? I was. So we have a wonderful team there in Arizona. Our headquarters is here in Atlanta. We have a sales office in London and our engineering is centered um, outside New Delhi. And so um, the split, you know, as everyone's sort of thinking about in a post COVID or end of wherever we think this is in COVID right now, we're recording this in May of 2022. And um, everyone's a bit remote, but we have offices in Atlanta, London, and in India, and then everyone else is remote. And, um, we have, uh, the highest density in India, second Atlanta, then London. Okay. Uh, I was going to ask about, I'm like, how do you, why would you have a sales office in, in London? I assume that's because of the, do you have a massive presence over in, in the UK and Europe? Yeah. You know, if, you know, Ryan, if you and I were starting a company here in the United States together and we wanted to sell our products in Kentucky, we probably would need distributors in Kentucky. We could figure that out. But if you're in, you know, Europe and you're trying to sell your products in Germany, you do kind of need partners. And so 
companies mature in their partner programs across Europe at an earlier stage than they do in the United States based on just how it's sort of set up in the languages and the markets. And so it's a great place for channel technology. And they're a very thoughtful group about buying these things for enablement. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. So let's, let's go back. Cause there's a, there's a lot of great things that, that you've done in your past. I love the fact that you grew, you know, and, and took on or not took on, took in 90% of revenue as sales. That's props to you. You were the, uh, the top producer, obviously by the metrics. Um, <laughs> but when you, when you guys went from zero to 110 million, what was that journey like, especially from a strategy perspective and, and would love to hear what your perspective is and how you kind of looked at that strategically, because those are a lot of big changes that happen along the way from zero to 110 million. Yeah. So that, you know, had more to do with mergers and acquisitions and seeing that there was an opportunity to create a really meaningful company in a space that had a bunch of little companies and creating new sets of products that would be meaningful across the larger uh, customer set. And so Veritas is a very well-known private equity firm based in New York City. And it was their thesis. And I was recruited in to execute in managing M&A and, and the products that we brought in. And so um, based on, on uh, being able to evaluate you know, what the future of that market would look like, figuring out... Um, you know, that unfortunately we live in a world with an increasing number of emergencies, thinking about what would be really meaningful ways to make a response and make a difference when those things occur um, was how you design the product. And then you have to think about making it, you know, really, really um, sustainable in whatever type of environment and making it uh, something that people really understand. And so it was actually a massive amount of software that you have to create to create emergency response because um, you need all of the workflows to sort of be pre-decided so that people don't have to make as many decisions during that time. So but here's a question. Did you have any experience in the M&A background with an M&A M&A at all? Yeah. So before that, I was at a company called PGI. And um, so I started out there managing their innovation lab. And so I worked for the chairman, Bolin Jones, and the CTO, David Guthrie. Um, and they are two of the um, most capable M&A executives I've ever worked with. And um, Sean O'Brien was their head of M&A. And he is one of those people that has an amazing awareness of any deal. And if you can get someone of his caliber leading m a it's great. And he, they all had unlimited bandwidth to teach me. So, wow. um, you know, I had never run a global technology organization like what David was running with 2,500 employees. And so being able to come in and move from running the innovation lab to overall, all of the web-based products allowed me to learn from David a, a broad set of skills and a lot of PGI success was through 22 acquisitions while I was there. Um, and I was not active in all of those, <laughs> but my fair share. And um, so I definitely learned a lot through Sean and through Bolin and David. So, you know, I would say a lot of the heavy lifting on the modeling and the work and the reach out happened from Veritas when I was at 
OnSolve, uh, but doing the technology due diligence and looking at the markets and so forth, those were things that I was ready to handle with them. Okay. So yeah, it sounds like you were groomed along the way to, to, I was thinking you went straight from product to then M&A and I'm like, that's a kind of an interesting jump, but it makes sense if, cause you had to do all the product due diligence along the way. So you're actively involved in 22 acquisitions or 20, 20, 22 acquisitions in that area. Um, so that's, that's really cool. And so obviously the design for that was, it was a creating a product stack and then assimilating different products into others. I assume that's why you acquired so many companies on the way to 110 million. Was that? Yeah, kind there, of were only four, there were only four real acquisitions um, while I was there to get to that. A lot of it was building out products as well. Okay. Uh, and so, you know, when you're doing a build versus buy decision, so if there's a set of products that you, don't have. So let's say that one of your listeners is a CRO and, you know, she's losing deals because she doesn't have some feature, you know, and she's having a meeting with her chief product officer and they know that there are some companies out there with those features and they could buy those companies or they could build it. So how do you come up with the model of what it costs to do one versus the other, so you can figure out the economics of that. And then, you know, how do you work through, you know, the set of actions to figure that out uh, and execute? And what are your odds? And so, you know, it's one of those things where you can't assume that you can acquire any feature and you can't assume that um, you can build any feature. And so there's limits on time and money. And, and, um, and so how do you build something that, has all of the requisite things that you need to win on a sustaining basis. And sometimes it has to do with acquisitions and sometimes that's not, not feasible. So I'm curious on how you did that and like that modeling. So we don't need to go super deep in this, but do you look at like, okay, if we build it, it's going to take X amount of time, X amount of resources. And then, and I'm oversimplifying stuff, I'm sure massively. Right. Um, and then spit out a number versus like we buy this company. Um, so, capital for the company plus integration aspects equal a number. Um, is it something along those lines, I assume, for, for doing that? Or is it at my way off? Let's say that there is a $100 million run rate telecom company. Mm-hmm. And let's say that they're trading at, what do telecom companies trade at these days? Two times ARR? I don't know. It's worth $200 million bucks, right? And let's say they don't have a lot of debt. And let's say they have really good uh, banking relationships so they can get access to debt. And let's say they really are losing badly to Zoom and others on you know the meeting software. So do they go buy um, like a web collaboration tool or do they build a web collaboration tool? Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, the right thing to do is to do an evaluation, as you're saying, of the level of effort. But there is something really nice also to think about when you bring customers over that are using something, the hard lessons you don't have to learn in the go-to-market, right? So it's not always right to build and it's not always right to buy. But if, let's say, those web conferencing companies are trading at a much higher multiple and so now you have to buy something kind of small to get it, would this increase the value of your company or decrease the value of that company as they move to your multiple? Right. And so you need to think not just about the feature you're missing and not just about the build versus buy, but the financial viability of it as well. 
and your access to capital. And then it helps to have more than a target, a target list of more than one um, in that, in that space for what could fit. Yeah. It'd be, it sounds really obvious once you say it, but that's not what I thought of initially, but as you're talking through there, yeah, obviously you got to look at the future value of the company and what's the upside and potential downside as well. So I, I think that's, it's a strong <clears throat> distinction right there. So, so Daniel, as we're talking through, you know, let's shift gears. You, you started working at Allbound. You've been there. How, how did you begin? Right. Cause this is your first time as technically being a CEO at a startup. How did that process go? What did you do? How did you handle it, man? Yeah. So if, if any of your listeners are thinking about making that shift from, you know, running revenue or running product into starting a company or taking over a company, you know, when you take over a company, you're taking over stuff that's going great and you're taking over stuff that's not going so great. Right. And I would say the very first thing that anyone should look at is their product. And they should look at the customers that are happy and the customers that are unhappy. And you got to figure out why. Mm-hmm. And so fortunately for me, we were using and are still using Gong. I think Gong is a fantastic tool. And so I had every interaction with every prospect and every customer recorded. And, you know, I became, you know, like the way that some people binge Netflix, I binge customer interaction. And um so trying to figure out what, what was working and what wasn't working. And I was really pleased to see that my assumptions about what I liked about the product were being proven out by a you know, large base of our customers. Uh, not all, but a large base. And so I figured out you know, some places that we were trying to do business that was really not a good fit and some places that uh, was going really great that we could focus a little more attention on. Um, we needed to, we didn't have a marketing department and, and so that needed to happen. We were out of cash and so we needed money and, um, the product team were two people. And so that needed to be fixed. So I mean, there were just 12 people in a room. So like not a, you know, there wasn't a lot of people. And so, uh, putting together a plan on how to do better on, um, awareness for our company and for not running out of money and for, um, uh, and for creating a really sustainable, exciting product in this market, and then presented that to investors, raised a little bit of money. And um, then from there, we continued to have a really uh, good growth. Our market grows at about 30% a year. Um, and that average includes COVID. It was slower growth before COVID. And um we've grown at above that pace. I've given my, my ranges of, of where I was and where we got to. So people can kind of do the math on that, but, uh, getting your unfair share of that growth means that you're making a bigger difference than the other people in the marketplace. So you're the first CEO that's ever come on the show and, and said that they've listened to, they've binge listened to gong recordings. And my, my wife makes fun of my G, my G pronunciation. So I'm saying G O N G when I say gong, that's yeah. I don't know if it's a South Side accident. Me, I don't I don't say G's for some reason, but like so I think that's really interesting, and I love that. I've never heard anybody use it for product, right? So, how, like, how many how many hours did you listen to? And then like like Great you know, yeah, how many hours did you listen to? Like, what were the one or two key things that you you took away? I mean, I, obviously pattern recognition is huge, but walk me through that. 
Yeah. So number one lesson is listen at it. Listen to these at above one time speed. You'll get through a lot more of them, but don't <laughs> listen to them at two times speed because you'll miss something. So, so that's really important for people that want to do this. Um, I don't know how you build a product without listening to your customers. So anyone that's building a product that's not listening to gong recordings or some corollary that tells you what people think about your product. Um, I don't know what you're doing. And um, you know, I, I, I couldn't tell you hundreds of hours of gone recordings. Um, um, I don't know. And weeks, weeks worth of work, but you know, done at double speed. Right. So, um, or less or 1.25 was my magic number uh, for that. So, um, you know, and there's a mobile app, so you can do it while you're walking around your neighborhood and keep going. You're, you're, uh, you're triggering questions. So that's why I'm, but keep going. I don't want to interrupt you. Yeah. So, you know, you have everyone's opinion that works in the company to listen to. And when there's not a lot of people, it's important to have lots and lots of one-on-ones. And I prefer one-on-ones to group meetings because group meetings tend to shift um, what people are saying towards one voice that they like in the meeting, as opposed to each person being their own voice. Um even now when I do annual planning, well, we'll see how I do it this year. There might be too many people, but I've always done one-on-ones with every employee during annual planning. Um, but now that there'll be about a hundred people, that might be harder. <laughs> we'll do it's a two lot of one-on-ones, man. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. But on the gong side of things, you know, every, you know, it's really important to see why people chose to buy and then why they stayed or why they left. And is there a difference between what they bought and what, we actually delivered. And what is that difference? And there's always a difference, right? Like everything we've ever bought is always a little different than what it is. Sometimes better, sometimes like a lot better, right? And sometimes not. And you can, you know, look at net promoter scores for that and that sort of thing, but it's just a number. And it'd be really helpful if you could just listen to the why they bought and the why they stayed and the why they left. And, and, um, and you'll hear that. Interesting. That's cool. I love that. Very innovative. Um, smart. So have you used it on an ongoing basis since like now that the company's more mature, do you always do product check-ins like quarterly or what's kind of your cadence now? Or do you have one? Actually, I've got a really good use case for going for for anyone listening to this call. We call this call calibration. Um, Mm -hmm. this is really cool. So, uh, we'll talk about it in the product sense if you want to, but on the sales side of things, uh, every, Every uh, week, every other week, uh, there's a cadence of this that we go through a discovery call or a um, or a, uh, a product demo call and and listen to it and then comment on it. So if you're a new salesperson or a new customer success person, that you can listen to these things and not just hear what the salesperson or customer success person did on these calls, but also hear. Um, what the coaching would be for that. And it becomes a really good shortcut to training. Love that. Um, On the product side of things, we run a global company. And so, you know, it's really important for the product team to do recordings of uh, where they're out at in, in different parts of their work. So they can do a really good handoff. Meaning like if I am a designer in India and I'm designing a flow for, you know, this screen to that screen. And I want my 
product team that did the research project on that to kind of take a look at it. And they are in Atlanta. It's, you know, if I record this and then send it over, then I can have feedback by the time I wake up the next morning. And so having using video as an asynchronous way to communicate. And so you use that for internally then as well. Is that what I hear you saying? Yes. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. Yeah. You're, you're a great use use case for them. I'm sure they would love you if you, they, if they don't already have this as a case study, I'm sure they would love it moving forward. So, uh, so, so Daniel, what would you say is the, the number one single biggest challenge that you're running into at the revenue stage that you're at right now? Number one, um, you know, I would say that we promoted nearly 60% of our team to higher level roles last year. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would say that we'll do something similar this year, but finding talent that can keep up, I think is really hard. It's a really, you know, I, I know that there's some headwinds on the economy, but as far as finding, you know, talented people, it's, it's, it's a, it's a rough, rough go right now. And if I could hire everyone I wanted to hire, I think that things will go much more easily. What about on the revenue growth side? I mean, that's growing as a company. Let's just parse that down even more specific with revenue. What what would you say is the, the most challenging thing for, for growing right now outside of people? Let's say outside of adding people. Yeah. Um, it, well, I meant it on, on the on the revenue side, but if, if I'm going to get a, okay. little more, a little more granular on that, I would say that... Um, you know, look, this is this is a space that has gone from zero to over a billion dollars in, you know, a matter of years. And so the number of experts that are, exist out there in the world of channel technology and best cases that you can hire to participate in being the voice of 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 channel for people to learn from, whether that's your customers or prospects, uh, there just aren't that many people out there. And so you have to make them. And that takes a long time. Yeah. OK. That's interesting. And I, I could see that, obviously. I, I mean, that totally makes sense. So what would you, let's flip it. What would you say that you've done that's led to tremendous growth in your company in terms of revenue? You've, you have great numbers since you've come on board. You've grown the team massively. What would you say is the number one, you know, best thing that you think you're doing as a leader to, to infuse that growth? Um, I think that investing really heavily in the product if people looked at our product back in 2018 or 2019 and 20, like each year, it would look so dramatically different, not just user experience, sure, but like more on what it does to grow our customers' revenues and automate the work in their, in their world. And so what that means is that the ROI for buying our product has dramatically increased, but we've also been able to capture a little bit of that as well. And so our, Contracts have gone up um, for customers, uh, not as fast as the ROI, but they've gone up. And so I would say product-led growth from, you know, features that lead to ROI is the number one thing. Well, I guess like, so if you're going through that, like how much do you allocate towards, towards product then each year of revenue? Like, is there a formula you leverage? Is, do you take it year by year? Like, how do you kind of approach it? That's a great question. So what we do in the summer is we start annual planning for the following year or two years, really. And it starts with product, right? So we look at 
you know, what are our feedbacks have been from our current customers, what, what they say that they wish they had. And we look at what prospects are, are going with us and going with others. And we look at adjacent uh, addressable markets and whether we can build or buy our way into them. And that leads to, you know, what we would like to do over a couple years period on the product side. And then we can cost that out to, you know, an 80% accuracy um, and, you know, get closer and closer by October. Um, and that starts to generate a retention plan and a sales plan and a marketing plan that are fundamentally different based on what we built. Right. And then by October, we kind of bring this all together for our board to review, uh, and approve a budget for the following year. Uh, sometimes that budget requires money that we don't have and, uh, that becomes a discussion and, and then we could raise money for it. And sometimes it doesn't. And, um, so, you know, that's, that's how we make those decisions. That's awesome, man. I love that framework. And I think that's, it's a really cool strategy on, on how you're leveraging that. And then you, you back into it. I mean, you, you just tell it like, you're so methodical with how you do everything. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm more of a salesperson at heart. Uh, even though I'm not a salesperson, I mean, I guess you're always a salesperson, right? But I, I just love the methodical approach you have to so many parts of the business and it obviously come through as we've kind of talked through here. So, um, so I think you've given them a lot of insights today. So we are just about up in time. I want to do a quick, like kind of fast fire questions for you. Uh, and then we'll wrap things up. So what would you say is your favorite book you've read over the past couple of years? Um, so I, I would say that, um, we do a company book club and the, the two that we as a company have probably gotten the most out of have been the sales acceleration formula by Roberge and, um, what you do is who you are by Ben Horowitz. Okay. Love that. Um, what, what's your favorite podcast or show that you listen to? I've been listening to acquired. Um, I just think the level of research that they're doing on companies is, is pretty great. And, you know, I tell people that I listen to, you know, six or seven hours of Berkshire Hathaway and they're like, Oh my God, how'd you get through that? I'm like, oh, I wish there were three more hours. It was so well done. <laughs> All right. Um, who's a founder that you, a founder or CEO that you admire that you think is doing an amazing job right now? Yeah. So I think Wayne Kellum here in Atlanta, he's taken six companies, uh, to be large global companies worth billions of dollars. And, um, he still takes time to sit on boards and help companies out. I think that, uh, it's very rare that you have someone that's that passionate and still working as hard as he does. Wow. Well, which companies did he take public? I haven't heard of him Wayne before. Yeah. So, um, there was Vocalocity that was then, uh, Vonage and, um, Space IQ is not public, but it's probably on its way. And um, then there were a few others. Okay. Uh, so two, two more questions. Um, what advice would you give to yourself, like knowing what you know now and when you're starting your startup career? Yeah. So, you know, I think that I was nervous about failing at stuff early on. And I think that if I had given myself permission to try stuff that could have failed more often, I would have learned things faster. I think fear of failure prevents people from having success. 
That's great advice. Because you always hear the general, um, you know, failures kind of required. But I, I love, I love that that spit on it. So, where do you think the future of tech is going over the next and within five years? Yeah. So I'm clearly an optimist. I work at venture backed companies, and I am just so excited about some of the innovations that I'm seeing um, in a number of areas. So I think that. The way that if we looked backwards five years and saw there were so many jobs today that didn't exist back then, and I think there will be a multiple multiplication of that in the future. But I think that if we were to look at places like biotech, um, I've heard it described by people that you know we're kind of in the 1970s or 80s, you know, version of where we were with the computer. Uh, there, I think the convergence of data and machine learning and biotech is going to be one of the most exciting changes to our earth. Wow. Well, we need it. There's a, there's a lot of help the earth needs right now. So that's exciting to hear. Well, Daniel, it was, it was a pleasure having you on, man. Where can people find you? Where can they learn more about you and Allbound? Yeah. So Allbound is really simple to find, allbound.com. And um, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn and post my thoughts there. Um, and so you can just search my name. I'm the only Daniel Graf Radford. I'm hundred percent sure of that on LinkedIn and, uh, and you'll find me there. Awesome. Well, thanks for being on the show. It was a pleasure having you on. I love your insights, love your thoughts. So thank you. Yeah, this was great. Thank you for inviting me. All right. Awesome. We'll see you on the next episode. Thank you for checking out the scale up show. My mission in life is to help founders and revenue leaders avoid all the pain and suffering in revenue growth so they can flip it and create a life of their own design. So if you enjoyed this show, please like, review, share it on social, and more importantly, just share it with a friend. Share it with someone that you think could learn and benefit from what you heard on today. But the more we get the message out, the more people we could help, the bigger the impact we make, and the bigger the community gets, which helps everybody. So once again, thank you for being a loyal listener. I appreciate you and look forward to seeing you on the next episode.